morning, everyone. Throughout the Grove, uh, our history, what we do primarily is preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. We've been in Mark for um, a year and a half, and we are almost done. So here's the plan, just so everyone understands what's going to happen, is we've got um, a little bit of Mark left. We are going to finish Mark up on Easter Sunday. Um, so Easter Sunday will be the last day of Mark. Um, so we have six more weeks. And then um, after Easter, we're going to start a new sermon series called, it's going to be a four-week sermon series. It'll, it'll kind of take us away from verse-by-verse preaching just for four weeks. And we're gonna, it's called Hot Seat, and there's a slide up here. Um, Jared in the back there. Uh, and what it is, it's going to be some conversations on some different controversies. And, and what I'm doing is I'm giving you guys the chance to pick what controversies we're going to talk about. And so if you go to hotseat.thegrovesp.com, you can submit questions. And we've gotten a lot of really cool questions so far. Um, I'll put those questions out there in a couple weeks to people to vote on. And the top four questions are the uh, sermons topics that we'll do for four weeks after Easter. Um, the reason why I wanted to do this is for one, it gives me four weeks to kind of study for the next book of the Bible will be in Amos after a uh, hot seat. And so it gives me some time to kind of set up Amos and, and get through Amos uh, and get ready to preach through that. Um, but I just think it's, it's fun to um, talk about some things that you guys want to hear about. And so, so we'll go through just four weeks of, of hot seat. And so if you have questions um, about the Bible, about Christianity, about culture, anything, like really nothing is off the table, um, whether it's sexuality, um, we, we've had some questions about that. We've had some questions about can faith and science coexist? Um, and so just some really cool uh, thought-provoking questions I'd love for you guys. So, so, so submit your questions. Go to hotseat.thegrovesp.com and submit your questions, and we'll vote on them later. And then we'll be in Amos after that. So that's kind of just setting you up, getting us through uh, spring and the summer. Um, but today, focusing on today, we'll be in Mark chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, there should be a hardback black one somewhere, somewhere around you. Um, if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you, so enjoy that. Um, and we'll be in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32. Starting in verse 32. So I'll read through it, and then we'll, we'll go back through it and kind of dissect it a little bit. So, well, real quick, set, set the scene before we get there. Set the scene. Jesus... Um, uh, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem uh, on the back of a colt or a donkey, and he enters into Jerusalem. Um, he goes to the temple and um, kind of denounces what's going on there and kind of disrupts everything that's happening there. Uh, the leaders are, 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 are firing questions at him, trying to trap him in, in, in a plot to kill him and a reason why he should be killed. Um, and he's answering those questions and working through those questions. And then he leaves. Um, they prepare a place for Passover. We went through last week. Um, it was kind of like slush, slushy last week. So I don't know everyone can make it, but last week we talked through Passover um, and, we, and we had the Lord's Supper together um, and kind of celebrating uh, the, the Passover and, and, and what Jesus um, was talking through uh, at the, at the, um, during his, past, his last Passover uh, on earth. And so we talked through that and now Jesus has left the upper room where they had Passover. He's gone down the valley and up to the Mount of Olives and they're singing, they sung a hymn or, um, and Jesus has said some things to Peter, how everyone's gonna fall away. Um, and Peter's like, I'm definitely not gonna fall away. Even if I have to die, I won't do that. Um, and Jesus is like, no, you'll definitely fall away. And so here we are. Um, it's kind of setting the scene where we are here in Jesus' last week on earth. And so, um, or before death. And so verse 32 says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. 
And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so here, Jesus, before his execution, he, he opens up his hearts to his disciples. He opens up his hearts to the readers of Mark, and he says, I, I'm greatly troubled, sorrowful, even to the point of death. And he asks God, falling on his face in prayer, in other, in other gospels, we learn that he's sweating drops of blood, cries out to God, his father, please let this cup pass for me. Please don't if there's any other way for this mission to be accomplished, let that, let that be the way we do it, but not your will, or not my will, but your will be done. Up until this point, Jesus has been completely in control. In fact, every time he, he, I mean, he's talked about his death several times to his disciples, and never was he this troubled over it. He was calm, in control. I mean, I mean this, is, this is the Jesus who raised a little girl from the dead, who calmed the storm, who slept through the storm. I mean, this is the calm, cool, collect Jesus. Now at this hour, he is greatly troubled, even to the point of death, falling on his face in prayer, asking God for a different way. I mean, as we just think back through the gospel of Mark, I mean, this is, Jesus has been totally unflappable, and yet here he is, shaken to the core and broken. And why is that? Because he sees something coming. And I think it's interesting, if we could take Jesus' reaction to his, his, what's about to happen, we kind of, kind of parallel that to historic Christians dying, uh, men and women who have been killed for their faith. And I mean, men and women have been thrown to wild animals, they've been cut to pieces, burned at the stake, and it, and it kind of appears that they took their death better than Jesus did. I mean, we have these stories. We have uh, Polycarp, who was uh, the bishop of Smyrna. He was an early Christian leader. And near the end of his life, he was taken to the magistrate. The magistrate, you are going to be burned at the stake. But, but the magistrate said at the very end, he said, I will give you one more chance to recant Christianity. If you recant it now, you will not be burned at the stake. You can avoid execution. And I want to read Polycarp's reply because it was, it was brilliant. It said, the fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. You do not know the fire of the coming judgment. Why do you delay? Come do what you will. I mean, it seems like he's taking his death better than Jesus did. He's calm, cool, like just bring it, bring on the fire. I'm okay with that. And then you have uh, Nicholas Ridley and, and Hugh Latimer. They, they are um, some Englishmen from 1555 and they were arrested and, and, and tried for their faith in Oxford, England. And they were tied side by side and a fire was lit at their feet. And this is what Latimer said, what Hugh Latimer said. He said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And there's story after story of men and women dying for their faith and taking it so well, almost welcoming it, as, as, as Paul said in Philippians, to die is gain. Like, this is okay with me. But Jesus here is, sh- is, is, shook, is sh- uh, shook to the core and asking God for another way. Why is that? Something happened in the garden that Jesus saw, felt, sensed that was coming, and it shocked the unshakable Son of God. And what I would submit to you this morning is that it was something beyond physical death, that it was something that none of these martyrs ever experienced. In fact, the reason why they never had to experience it is because Jesus experienced it just a few days after this. 
And Jesus had something else coming. It wasn't just physical death, but something so much worse that being burned at the stake would feel like flea bites in comparison. Jesus knew he was going to die. He talked about it all the time. But there's a little difference between knowing something's going to happen in the future and knowing it's going to happen right now. And Jesus in prayer says, take this cup from me. And this cup, just to give you an idea of what this cup is, um, in, in Hebrew history, in Hebrew scriptures, in, in our scriptures in the Old Testament, the cup is a metaphor for the wrath and anger of God. The wrath of God on human evil. It's an image of divine justice in a cup being poured out on injustice. So Ezekiel 23, verses 32, 34 says something like this, says, you will drink a cup large and deep, the cup of ruin and desolation, and you will tear your breasts. And Isaiah 51, 22 says, the cup that made you staggered, the goblet of my wrath. So this metaphor Jesus is using is talking about the wrath of God that's to come in all his life. Jesus has spent um, just in this loving relationship with God the Father, and the Spirit would, would, flood Jesus's, um, would flood him with love for his Father. And so, so when Jesus was baptized early on in Mark, you had this picture, this dove coming down, the Spirit of God coming and resting on him and saying, this is my Son, and God the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And that happened physically and outwardly, but that same love, that same love for him is something that Jesus experienced all day, every day. He knew his Father's love for him, and what Jesus was about to experience was not necessarily that same experience, but it was the wrath of God, this, the abyss, the, the chasm, the nothingness of this cup. See, God is the source of all love, all life, all light. And Jesus was about to experience the darkness that comes from separation from God in his, in his wrath. And he experienced merely just a foretaste of that in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it staggered him. And so we get to this point, we talk about God's wrath, and I think oftentimes people are a little uncomfortable with this idea of God's wrath. And people say things like, I don't like the idea of the wrath of God. Like my God, the, my God is, is a God of love and he would never be angry like that. He would never have to kill anyone or send anyone to hell or anything like that. But the problem is, is if we say we want a loving God and we take away his anger and his wrath, he, he no longer becomes loving. And he, here's the reason why that is. It's because if you love anything, you have the capacity for anger for great anger. In fact, the more you love something, the more angry you can get towards anyone or anything that would harm that in which you love. I mean, think about this. When if you love something and someone harms that thing that you love, you get angry. Even if it's someone you love harming themselves, you still get angry at that person. So you, you love someone immensely and they're harming themselves. They're doing things that are destructive with their life. And you just feel this anger well up in you. In fact, the more you love that person, the more angry you get. And God, the God of infinite love and the God who sees all evil in the world, why wouldn't he have the capacity for great wrath and great anger? Those, I mean, in fact, the more God loves us, the more angry he can get. Our sense of love and justice are tied together and not in opposition to each other. So when we take away God's wrath and his anger, we no longer have a loving God. We have a God who's apathetic towards people, who doesn't care about the evil and injustice. He doesn't care if you harm your fellow Christians. He doesn't care if you harm your fellow man. He doesn't care if you harm yourselves, his creation. And we all understand that because we get angry too. And if we don't, it's because we're so self-absorbed, cynical or hard or unloving that we just don't care if someone's harming someone else. 
but it, does, it doesn't just stop there. Consider this. If, if you don't have a God of wrath, then you'll never understand how much God values you. And, and here's what I mean. Say over here we have a God who, who's, who, who, who says he loves you, but he has no wrath and no anger. And so he has no reason to go to the cross because there's no, nothing to pay for. And you, have a, you have the God of the Bible over here who is love, and he does have anger and wrath, and he, 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 but he loves you so much that he's willing to do something about it. And he sends his son to the cross to die in your place so that he don't have to experience his anger and wrath, but he experiences the Father's anger and wrath for you. But see, over here you have a God who just says he loves you. You never really understand if he actually does love you because there's no reason, there's no, there's no show of love. There's no, there's no show of the value you have to that God. So the only reason we know of our value to God the Father is because of his anger and wrath being poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we'll never understand God's love of us until we understand how angry he is at evil and our evil and how angry he was at us before Christ. Like we'll never value the cross because it won't make sense. We'll always think the cross is for my neighbor who's super evil who does these horrible things, and I hear, I hear them screaming at each other all the time, and so that the cross is for them. I'm kind of just in here because my parents, I never really did anything that bad. My parents were Christians. I kind of raised, got raised in church, and so I'm in. The cross really isn't, we'll, we'll never say that out loud because that would be silly, but we believe that. We'll never understand the cross until you understand how angry God was at you. The Bible would say that you were an enemy to God. You weren't a friend of God before Christ. You were an enemy to God. But it was in his great love for you that he went to the cross. In fact, you see here Christ being obedient because of his love. When, when there is a, uh, here, here's what we have oftentimes in life. We have this gap between um, the desires of our heart and our circumstances. And that, that's kind of what we would define uh, most of the time what suffering is, is when there's, there's a desire of our heart and in between that desire and our current life circumstances, there's a huge gap. And we're not getting what we want. And so we feel this sense of suffering. We're not getting the things we want. And oftentimes, it could be good things. You could want great things, and you're not having them. And there's this, there's this gap between your heart's desires and your present circumstances. There's a couple different ways to respond to that gap. The first way is you can change your circumstances. You can... You know, you can, uh, and sometimes that's a really good thing, right? Sometimes there's a friend that we shouldn't hang out with anymore. Sometimes there, there's, there's um, a job that we shouldn't have anymore. We need to go seek a different place to work, uh, a different circumstance. But that's, that's a one way to change your circumstances. But oftentimes that's not the right thing to do. Oftentimes we just run from things that we need to face head on and we just try and change things so we don't have to deal with these, this suffering. The other way to deal with suffering is to just kind of suppress your desires. And it's kind of more of the stoic mindset uh, of Greek, Greek philosophy and this idea of I'm just gonna suppress my desires, become detached from the things that I want, almost like just pretend like I don't want them anymore and just kind of trudge through life and trudge through the suffering. And we look at Jesus here in the Garden of Simeon, he appears to be taking the first approach where he wants to change the circumstances. He's saying, if there's a way for this mission to be accomplished in which I don't have to face your wrath, oh Father, like just let it be. You can do all things. You can, you can do anything that you want if there's a way for this mission to be accomplished without me going to the cross, do it. 
He's certainly not taking the way of detachment. I mean, he's pouring his heart out. He's broken. He's telling his disciples that he's sorrowful even to the point of death and he falls down and he's crying out to God. So he's certainly not taking the second one. He's honestly and desperately asking God to change the circumstances. He's asking him for a way out, asking for another way to rescue his people without having to personally go under the sword, go under the wrath of God. But if we look closely, he's actually not taking his circumstances into his own hands. He's asking God the Father to change them. But he also says, but not my will, but your will. And he lovingly surrenders his circumstances to his Father and says, look, th- this is what I want. This is what I would love to happen. I think, I think what happens oftentimes in our lives is we, we confuse our deepest desires of our heart with our loudest desires of our heart. And those are two different things. And so Jesus here has this deep desire in his heart to save man, to save his people, to bring many into the, to the, to, uh, to the family of God. That's the deepest desire of his heart. And the loudest desire of his heart right now is to do that any other way but face the wrath of God. But he submits to his deepest desire to glorify God by saving men and women. And he says, God, if there's any way to do it, do it. But, it, but if not, I'm willing to go because my deepest desire is to serve you, to accomplish this mission, to save men and women, to bring many sons to glory. Because he knows how horrible the cup is, but he also knows that his immediate desire must bow before his ultimate desire. That his immediate desire to be spared must bow before his ultimate desire to spare us. And that's the obedient. And and so we need to look at in our life and when we come to circumstances like this and suffering, you know, is this this really my deepest desire or is this just my loudest desire? And submit your loudest desires to your deepest desire to serve God. And I think if you're a Christian here today, that really is your deepest desire. It's oftentimes not your loudest desires. You may question yourself like, why don't I want to do the things of God? But the fact that you're asking, why don't I want to do the things of God means that's your deepest desire. It's just not always your loudest desire. And so we, we, we take Jesus' example and we're honest about where we are. We're honest about what we want and we surrender those things to God. And that's why we do things like steps. And so steps is our, our, re, our recovery program here at the Grove. And it's kind of our, our um, I mean, it's, it's totally voluntary, but man, I wish every single person would go through it because it is that amazing. Because what it does is it, it takes you and shows you the deepest desires of your heart. And it says, here's the lies that you're believing that are making these other desires so loud. And if you could root out these lies and place in it gospel truth, then these deepest desires of your heart will become louder and louder and louder. And you'll begin to do the things that you actually want to do in the deepest desires of your heart. And you'll stop doing some of the loudest desires. You'll start following Christ, start rooting out the, the sin and this, um, this unbelief. So I do things like steps. And so um, steps is coming up and I would encourage anyone who has not, um, not gone through steps to, to try to sign, sign up. And I say try to sign up because it leads me to my next point is that if you've gone through steps, please sign up to be a mentor. Like we need people to come alongside others and just live. It's not because you're better than them. It's just because you know the curriculum already because you've been through it. But the reason why you come alongside these people it's just to disciple, to live life with, to help walk through these different assessments of their life and, and kind of help them 
help them walk through what lies they're believing, help them replace and remind them of gospel truths. And, and, he, and here's why we do this. It's because Jesus is suffering God's wrath. Jesus has suffered God's wrath in our place. Jesus suffered God's anger so that we wouldn't have to. So there's this urgent need to disciple others. I heard a pastor say once that uh, hell's for, uh, um, that, that hell's real and, uh, or no, I'm sorry, that hell is hot and forever's a long time. And, and, and that's kind of crass. It might sound a little like uh, preachy in the sense of like, what is it called? Fire and brimstone. That's some people use around here. That hell's, you know, forever's a long time. Hell's hot and forever's a long time. But, but that, that reality of that is, is absolutely true. And Jesus proves that here. That sometimes we, we think Jesus just died on the cross for our sins. We kind of say that flippantly like he just died on the cross. But there's so much more happened on the three hours of the cross. Jesus suffered an eternity's worth of hell on the cross so that we wouldn't have to, so that others wouldn't have to. And so, so our lives as Christians, if you're a Christian here today, this morning, brother and sister of Christ, your life is to be poured out for the glory of God. And so that, what does that mean? It means, yeah, so you may have to sacrifice one night a week to mentor someone else, to disciple someone else, to help someone else find the joy of Christ in their life. It might mean that you sacrifice a couple nights a week to come to steps, to be a part of being discipled. And steps isn't the answer. It's not this, there's no go through steps discipleship program in the Bible, but it's our answer to try and help people love God, love each other and grow in godliness. And so there's going to be sacrifice. Our life should be filled really with self-denial. In fact, you, you read through the New Testament and, and constantly Paul, Peter, all these guys are talking about how they want to share the sufferings of Christ. Like our lives should be marked by suffering, but not the kind of suffering we think about in our mind of like, oh, I'm just gonna, I have this cruel master in God and I'm gonna suffer. Not, it's not like the slavery that Israel was in Egypt, but we have a good master, a loving master, and one who calls us into suffering that leads only to joy. I was talking with a friend yesterday and we were talking about how um, when we work hard around the house for our spouse, it brings joy to our lives. In fact, I, my favorite days are not the days that I lounge around doing nothing. My favorite days are when I work hard. I might be frustrated in the moment. I'd be like, what? Why do, my, my wife loves putting holes in our drywall. Um, she just loves hanging things. And then, and what happens is every time I hang something and then we repaint that room, there's an ungodly amount of spackling that's going on and you got to fill that up before we paint. Um, I've kind of just stopped doing that. So there's just holes all over the place, but we are constantly hanging things. Last night I was hanging things. Last night I was just hanging um, baby cameras. Uh, my daughter drew all over her wall with a Sharpie that I just painted. Um, and my wife thought it'd be really cool to just put a frame over it. And I'm like, won't that encourage her to keep drawing all over my freshly painted wall? Like, but I did it. I hung it. Um, and, I, and I get frustrated when there's so much stuff to hang. And that's, God's working on that. God's, God's trying to, uh, to soften my heart towards hanging things. But um, the reality is when I go to bed tired from working all day and working hard for the glory of God, for the good of my wife, for the good of my children, like those are my favorite days. And we, we, can, we, can, we can't really compare that to Christ's suffering, but it's the suffering that we're called to here on earth. It's part of the suffering that we're called to, to lay our lives down. As men of your household, what your calling is, is to lay your life down for your wife. Women, your calling 
is the, is the same as the man's just lay your life down for the glory of God through discipling others, discipling children, but discipling friends, discipling coworkers. Like our life has been marked by self-denial for the good of God, for the good of our community, for the good of our families. And so my prayer is that we would see this and we'd see God, Jesus in a moment, not of weakness, but a moment of honesty, saying, God, if there's any other way, please give it to me, but not my way, your way. And we'd have that same posture in our life. God, if there's a way to make disciples where I don't have to do these things, sure, that would be awesome, but not your way, my way. And we'd enter into the game of making disciples. We'd enter into the game of, of, of bringing glory of God to this area. We'd get off the bench, we'd enter in and score some points and play this game. God's calling us into this, this epic story and we get to be a part of it. And, it's, and, it, and there's a sense of urgency behind it because hell's hot and forever's a long time. And we have friends co-workers, family members who are perishing. And so we pray and we, 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 we share Jesus everywhere we go. And so that love that Christ shows us in the garden, that love of I'm willing to do whatever it takes to rescue you. I'm willing to be separated from my father to rescue you. That love we see, that love that is so loving, that gets so angry at the evil that love that is so obedient is the love you've been looking for all your life. It's not the same love your spouse is going to give you. It's not the same love your mother is going to give you. It's not the same love you're going to get from anywhere else. But it's the love you're looking for all your life. No other love will satisfy your soul. No other love will satisfy your heart. This love will never let you down, and every other love will. As much as I love my wife and as much as she loves me, I'm going to let her down, mostly when I get angry about hanging things, but, and she's going to let me down. And I can't put the kind of pressure on her that says, you need to satisfy my soul. You need to satisfy the longing of my heart. One, that's not fair. She was never created to do that. And two, it will crush her. The weight of that pressure, the weight of that will absolutely crush her. And so we come to God, we, we look at this picture, and I'll close with this, we look at this picture in the garden of Christ's great love for us, and that alone will satisfy your soul. So the calling for all of us is to continually come to Christ, to continually come to him, to surrender our will to him. And, and it's great to be honest and, and rip straight from steps. One of the things we say at the Grove here all the time is it's okay to not be Okay. Be honest about where you are before the Lord, before others. Be honest. Jesus didn't just tell the, tell the Father that he wanted another way. He told the disciples. He brought um, Peter, James, and John with him. He cried out that he was sorrowful even to the point of death. Really in Greek, that's this idea of being horrified about what's to come. So we're honest with each other and, other, uh, with each other and God. And then we put things in place. We enter into ways to, to continue to grow. Grow in godliness, grow in joy and grow in the glory of the Lord. And so um, we'll sing a couple songs in worship, um, and I'll come back up here in, um, and pray for us at the end. Let's, let's pray. Father, I just, uh, I just come before you, Lord, just so thankful uh, for this day, God, and just thankful for your word, Lord, as we can just enter into the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, Lord, and, and understand the suffering that was to come the suffering that was due us, Lord, and just be thankful and praise you for taking that from us. 
that we never have to worry about suffering your anger or your wrath. Your discipline, yes, because you love us, but never your anger, never your wrath that's due us, Lord. So we thank you for that. We praise you for that. I pray that would give us a sense of value and worth in you and you alone, God. Well, I pray as we go through this week, as we just go through life's circumstances, Lord, that we would just yield to you, that you, we would just pray like the song said, have your way, oh Lord, have your way. Even if it breaks us, we ask you to move, God. Lord, I just, I just pray for everyone here this morning, Lord, that as they go out today and, and into the week, that you would bless them as we enter in the season of Lent, that you would just um, draw our hearts in with the sufferings of Christ. We may know him more and know the joy of his fellowship, God. So I pray that for our church. I pray it for our community and all the churches around here, Father. We love you, and I pray this in your son's beautiful name. Amen. I love you guys.